Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. I'm Deborah Britstone and I'm here with Cecily White, a barrister at Sergeants in Chambers. Every police officer knows that they must have reasonable suspicion that a person's committed an offence in order to arrest them. But that's only half of what's required. The second element is that they must have a reasonable belief in the necessity for the person's arrest. Completely. And there has been a recent decision this year involving the Met Police and MR uh, looking specifically at the necessity requirement, which, as you say, is often where forces fall down, given that the reasonable suspicion threshold is you know, commonly understood to be a low one. So what did MR tell us? Well, it was factually a case about harassment between a woman and her partner, MR, um, they'd been in a relationship for just over a year. She complained to the police and the police did initially have some difficulty making contact with MR, the partner. But eventually he did attend for interview. So he attended at the police station, whereupon, before being interviewed, they arrested him. And he subsequently underwent the interview. Photographs were taken, fingerprints and so on. And then he was released on conditional bail. Ultimately, Mrs Justice Thornton, who was considering this appeal from a first instance decision, upheld the judge's conclusion that actually it hadn't been necessary to arrest him here. So this is basically another case involving voluntary interview. And it does rather call into question the circumstances in which where the person being arrested is prepared to cooperate and be interviewed voluntarily, whether it is actually necessary to arrest them and whether it's lawful to do so in those circumstances. So for defence solicitors, they know what to expect when they look at the justification for a person's arrest on the relevant custody record. And it's nearly always that the arrest was necessary to allow the prompt and effective investigation of the offence or of the conduct of the person in question. But that's only one of the grounds, isn't it? Absolutely. It's only one of the grounds. And merely stating the ground that's being relied upon, as you say, Deborah, you so often see that on custody records. Indeed, I think it's part of the pro forma. Merely citing the ground uh, doesn't necessarily give you the requisite reasonable basis for believing that an arrest is necessary. And belief, the courts have said repeatedly, is higher than suspicion. Obviously, the court, when it comes to court, has a reviewing role. And as we all know from Hayes, the older 2011 decision, there are two aspects to it. They first of all consider the honesty of the officer's belief. And then they go on to consider whether, viewed objectively, there are grounds for believing that the arrest is necessary. There is some interesting guidance from Mrs Justice Thornton in, in this recent case, which is helpful in cases where you have someone who's prepared to attend voluntarily. Here, this was all with regard to the first instance judge's reasoning. The first instance judge had observed that the officer could have gone ahead with the voluntary interview. And only if the voluntary interview hadn't been able to progress, then it could have been reasonable to consider arresting Mm. uh, the suspect. There wasn't any urgency to progress the investigation. That is, in my experience, very commonly an issue, particularly where you have a delay between 
the matters giving rise to a potential arrest and the investigation in historic yeah. sex cases would be a classic example of this. Absolutely. Or I did one recently where, not involving anything, I think it was a public order offence, but where months had elapsed between the actual incident and witness mm. statements being taken and the decision to arrest. Yeah. That is a classic warning sign. I mean, what is the urgency, urgency here absolutely. of going ahead? And would it be reasonable to consider alternatives? The need to establish his, identifi- his identity in the MR case didn't justify it because they knew who he was and he presented at the station. The bail conditions didn't justify it. Getting his telephone didn't justify it because I think he handed over his telephone on attendance. And basically, Mrs Justice Thornton looked at it in the hole and in the round and, and asked herself, was there a combination of factors which you know was sufficient to justify the necessity threshold and concluded that there wasn't? Quite a few of those points are relevant in other cases. Mm. Often, in my experience, it's helpful for there to be some sort of operational reason. For For the arrest. For the arrest, exactly. So in the Barrymore case, which I did recently, where it was suggested that he would have attended voluntarily if they'd only asked him, there was an operational reason for arresting him alongside two other suspects at the same time, which was persuasive. Would it always need to be persuasive? As in, is there a sort of a level, a threshold where you think that you get to that point where that operational reason reason is sufficient? Personally, I think often it comes down to a common sense view as to whether or not there's a need to arrest in the circumstances. And what does necessity actually mean? It's got an everyday meaning, which we all understand. Obviously, it's fact specific and depends on the case. Mm. That's why I think it's sensible guidance to think, is there an alternative to an arrest here? Is there a way of doing this with the suspects cooperation mm. and and merely performing that exercise and giving consideration to something else and ideally recording it obviously as lawyers uh, having a record is is always much to the good so it's something more than convenient or sort of desirable i think is is exactly clever. exactly it's not just what do we want to do it's do we have a, a rational basis for justifying this arrest and for rejecting going about it in a different way, rejecting alternatives. Where a person is prepared to attend voluntarily, what advice would you give to the officer considering making an arrest? I think the MR decision is helpful because it considers exactly that scenario, i.e. where a suspect attends voluntarily and is ostensibly prepared to cooperate. And Mrs Justice Thornton did give some guidance, which I think is helpful. Um, She confirmed exactly as you said, Deborah, that the test of necessity is more than simply would it be desirable or convenient to arrest the suspect. She actually went as far as to say it is a high bar. Obviously, it's been introduced since 2006 as the separate requirement to reasonable grounds. And she said that was to tighten the accountability of police officers. She concluded that it wasn't necessary to arrest MR because he'd attended at the police station, they'd got his mobile phone and he'd was apparently prepared to cooperate. And she went on to say this. She said, whether a person attending at a police station voluntarily for the purpose of assisting with an investigation needs to be arrested is fact-specific, which we've recognised and and follows in every case. She went on to say, the officer who has given no thought to alternatives to arrest is exposed to the risk of being found by a court to have had objectively no reasonable grounds for his belief that arrest was necessary. So pausing there, as we've said, considering alternatives to arrest, even if that's a pretty rapid consideration, at least giving some consideration to alternatives seems to be important. And recording it. And recording it, exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. But she, she then went on to say the obvious alternative to arrest was to interview MR, establish his identity and require that he hand over his phone. Any difficulties in this regard could have necessitated his arrest at that juncture, but not before. That's sort of elaborating on the same point, which is obviously arrest might become necessary if steps to progress the investigation via voluntary attendance and cooperation break down. Absolutely. Um, but it's worth considering whether it's possible to make progress in that way before reaching a decision on necessity. What are the consequences for police forces of getting this wrong? Well, because necessity is a separate and additional requirement to reasonable grounds for arrest, if an officer or a force fail to satisfy that necessity requirement, then a force will be liable in damages for an unlawful arrest. Actually, in MR, the damages were pretty modest, just under £3,000. But one can readily see how in cases involving potentially high-profile individuals or individuals with significant loss-of-earnings claims, the damages for which a force could potentially be liable could be very significant. Certainly in the recent Barrymore case, in excess of £2 million was claimed, which gives an idea of the potential scale of damages for which forces can be held liable. That said, it's not all necessarily bad news. Certainly in the Barrymore case, the force were successful in arguing that because both requirements would have been satisfied had things been done as they should have been done, i.e. there were reasonable grounds for arrest and there were reasonable grounds for believing that the arrest was necessary, the claimant, i.e. Mr Barrymore, was only entitled to nominal damages and not the massive substantial damages that he had claimed. And potentially that decision could be important in other situations where a force can show that even though the arresting officer didn't have the grounds for arrest in mind, if he had done, there would have been a lawful arrest and therefore uh, no loss has actually been suffered. But damages will otherwise, if necessity isn't satisfied, be owing. And that is why it's important to get these things right first time. Indeed. So what would be your key takeaways for people listening? I think there are a handful of helpful takeaways from the recent case and the previous case law. As we've said, considering alternatives to arrest doesn't necessarily need to be war and peace, but at least some consideration of alternatives. And as you say, Deborah, ideally writing it down and creating some sort of record. In my experience, where there's a long delay between the early evidence and activity giving rise to the grounds for arrest in the first place and the decision to arrest, that is sometimes a warning sign Mm. that it isn't actually necessary to arrest when the arrest comes to take place. Although not always. In some situations, there is a justification for that passage of time. But that comes back to considering why you're doing what you're doing in the first place. So identifying some sort of operational reason for the arrest is often very helpful. And as we've said, sometimes it comes down to common sense and just considering whether there is actually a need to do what you're proposing to do from the outset. So I suppose it boils down to doing more than simply going through the motions. Yeah, because obviously for the person who's being arrested, it's not run-of-the-mill for them. It's run-of-the-mill for the police officers filling in the forms, but for the individual, it's a serious interference with with their liberty. So there needs to be some careful consideration of that before any decisions are made. Thank you. 
Thank you for downloading the Plod Podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.